Robert Nathan is an award-winning television producer, screenwriter, journalist, and novelist, best known for his work on the Law & Order television franchise and his novel The White Tiger. He has worked in politics, broadcast and print journalism, film, and television. Nathan joined the original writing staff of Law & Order, working on three series in the franchise. Nathan's script for the episode Manhood, co-written with Wallen Green, holds the franchise's only Emmy nomination for Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. He was also on the original staff of the TV series ER and received a Peabody Award. Nathan has received four Emmy nominations, an Edgar Award nomination, the GLAAD Media Award, the Silver Gavel Award, the Shine Award, and a Humanitas Award nomination. Robert Nathan, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. So you, you've been a writer for a number of years. I think that many will know you from your TV work, but of course, uh, you're a novelist who also came up through journalism. Um, and now you have, uh, and you've been writing a lot within the uh, crime thriller procedural genre that people would know from Law and Order. Um, right, and at the moment, you've, you've taken a kind of departure for a different genre, a different period. If you'd like to speak a little bit about the adventure of that? Um, I normally don't, I mean, it's true that I've spent a lot of time in the, in the police genre, but I don't normally think of myself as, I don't think of that as my genre necessarily. Sure. Um, uh, I think I also, I mean, the, the last novel I wrote many, many years ago could be, I guess could be called, it could be in the spy genre. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't um, even think of what, what I'm doing now is certainly not in the, um, not a police drama. It's not a policier. It's not a, um, well, it only involves spies peripherally, but mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a period in American history that hasn't been um, um, done much. But for me, it wasn't even about finding a period. It was about a piece that I wrote probably, probably 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was for HBO and it, it was a series of pieces uh, combined from several writers and it didn't, wasn't produced. Mm -hmm. So it sat there, but I knew, I know that it's one of the better things I've ever written just because of the way people respond to it. But I felt that when I finished it. And one day my agent said, what are you doing with that? Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'm turning it into a play, which I did for about six months. <laughs> and then he said, called me and said, how's the play? I said, I'm not making this work. I, I, you know, I'm too used to being able to, to move scenes and to have crowds where I need them and, I haven't quite mastered. I have had friends who are playwrights who've given me lessons, but I, it wasn't working. And he said, um, and I had tried it as a movie as well. And he said, why don't you do it as a pilot, as a series? And it was as if I'd just been hit by a, by a hammer. Of course, that's the way it didn't even, it never occurred to me. And then in a kind of heat, I sat down and wrote the pilot in I don't know, five or six weeks, you know, really incredible speed for me writing a pilot. And it, um, when I sent it off to them and to my director friends, they all said, this is the best thing you've ever written in your life. Wow. So it was amazing. And I think, you know, you hear writers talk, I did when I was younger, of how the material takes them over or a character takes them over. And you think, no, no, that doesn't happen. It's craft. And then when it does happen and you feel as if, you feel like you're not writing it, that it's being dictated to you. Now, I know that's not true, but it's what it feels like when all of a sudden something appears on the screen that you weren't expecting. Sure. Somehow it's um, maybe even not like a ventriloquism, but it's a channeling of something. So you, if you can trick yourself to thinking like it's like it happened to you, like a dream or something. And you're, that's right. You're, you're, you're kind of rehearing and trying to remember what happened. Um, well, it happened a lot. I mean, it, I'm, uh, writers always talk about, I remember reading, the character ran away with the scene. Mm -hmm. now, that doesn't happen. You're sitting there writing it. But it's happened where, well, for example, I was writing the last novel, and a character started to speak not the way I had expected him to, and not the way he was written in the outline. He, he became somebody completely different right in front of me. I thought, it's almost as if I'm not doing this. Now, of course, I am. Uh, but also, you'll be, I'll be writing a script, 
And I'll get to a moment where I don't know what's coming. What, how, who is this character? Mm -hmm. How does she behave? And she'll say something, I'll say something, that tells me immediately who she is. But it's always a bit of a surprise when that moment comes. Well, there's so much... I think it's. I think that some people, actors, because you've written for so many great actors as well, um, and so many people in your collaborative profession rely on intuition and I really valorize it. But there's another part of I don't know what. For some reason, we think, oh, it's intuition. It comes second nature, or you didn't think of it. But like, intuition is a very compressed form of intelligence. It's kind of really fast moving. You know, it's not like. <laughs> um, I think it's often smarter. It's just moving so fast that we can't see, you know, we, we don't know what's happening, you know? I do think, yeah, I think um, when it happens sort of um, unexpectedly and magically, you say it's intuition or it's, yeah. some, it's something outside of me. But it's not. It's just a way of explaining to oneself what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you're right. I think it's a, um, intuition is something much bigger than, um, oh, it's the, uh, it's, it's, uh, some magical force dictating the script or the novel. No, it's, it's that whole collection of things that we are that we don't always, we're not always conscious of. We don't know who we are all the time. So that to me is the, uh, the power of it, is that you bring yourself to bear on something, but you don't really, you're not consciously doing it. Your whole, everything you are, everything you've experienced. Somebody once said, is, is, asked me if, being a journalist or, or a novelist had, was helpful for writing television and, or, or writing movies. And I would say everything plays off everything else. That when you've been telling stories in one form or another, it makes telling stories in some other form a little easier. So that all of the experiences, um, although I had, a, I had a bias toward dialogue anyway, even, a, even as a novelist, um, I had I, I, I did better with dialogue. I knew that I could tell a story better with somebody speaking than with narration. Sure, so many things are said in a compressed way in dialogue or even through their omission are, are indicated. And, and I think that it really, well, particularly now with, um, you know, obviously the popularity of, of television and film, people are geared to hearing stories through dialogue, even if they're reading them. Um, and I think that a lot of people, this is something I also, uh, and, um, Elmore Leonard was, was great in terms of his writing advice. And he says, people just like, they like the dialogue. <laughs> they just skip to the dialogue, just do that. And so I think it's great advice for anyone who can do it. Because a lot of writers, well, a lot of novelists are novelists because they're not as comfortable as what, I mean, some are really great at dialogue, but a lot are kind of, I mean, those aren't necessarily always characters of action in novels, you know, characters of, um, who, who express their, their wishes. <laughs> so it's, um, there's a reason why they're novelists, I think. You know, there's a very, it's a kind of um, humorous, um, very famous story about the producer and the novelist um, who they're trying to turn into a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. And the producer says, I need the scene here where uh, it's, we understand that the husband has a wandering eye and his wife doesn't like it. So the playwright comes back with three pages and the producer says, no, I need this to happen really fast. It's just a moment. I want the audience to realize that so you can get on with the story. And the playwright writes another three pages. He says, no, no, here's how you do it. They come out the front door. They walk into the elevator. The door's open. They get in. There's a beautiful blonde in the elevator and the husband goes like this. The wife goes like this. He said, over. He looked at her, she's angry, we can go on from right there. So what can you do in five seconds that you didn't take you three minutes? Yes, and, um, and, and, a, and a novelist could take 300 pages sometimes, some, but not all, of course, because there's, I mean, the novels. Now you've read, it's interesting because you've been a novelist on your, well, I mean, there's always the editor, but you've been a novelist, a solitary novelist, and you've also been a collaborative novelist. If you could speak a little bit about that process, kind of almost preparation, a little bit for writing rooms or something else. It was actually, I, uh, I was in my agent's office kind of at loose ends. Um, I, was, um, I was working on the last book at the time and didn't, couldn't quite, I'd written half of it and none of it worked. And she had said to another client of hers, um, you should work with him. He's very fast. 
which at the time I wasn't being very fast. I was leaving town to go to Los Angeles to write a script with some friends. I came back and that, that was the first really intense collaborative experiences I'd had with, um, with Henry Vermel, who is no longer with us, unfortunately, and Caroline Thompson. And we wrote a script, all three of us in a room, and it taught me something about collaboration and how you have to let everybody have their freedom or people will get tired of being in the room. Uh, so I get back to New York and the guy says, hey, remember me? And I said, oh yeah, what were we talking about? He said, I have this idea about a novel about voodoo and I want you to write it with me because I don't know how to write it. So we locked ourselves in a house up in somewhere in upstate New York and we, we wrote, I would write five pages, he would write five pages. Um, he would rewrite my five pages. I'm trying to remember, was that the first one or the third one? Anyway, we, we just passed it back and forth. And you, if you take your ego out of it and say, oh, he's really good at that, let him do it. Um, and then if you sit and talk about how to make this scene work, it does go a whole lot faster. And then, of course, you end up doing it in television every day. Yeah. And, and that's so great that when you, as you say, uh, play to your strengths. And I mean, because it's a big burden that one requires a, a novelist to to you know have all of those traits <laughs> it's really you know so even a collaboration of two is still a big responsibility because oh. um you don't can't you can't rely on the images so much and <laughs> i think we both uh, as writers we both we both wrote in the same way in the sense he wrote from character and i wrote from character mm. uh, who is this character who do we want this character to be how does he move through what we've already conceived as plot without turning it into melodrama? How do we make it, how do we make him not serve the story, but have the story serve him? And we both knew that, but the temptation is to not think about the character um, independently, but to let the plot that you already have in mind drive, drive the character. And then you end up with not even without even good popular fiction. And even, um, I think that a lot of um, filmmakers, it's like a truism now that they say that bad books make great films because, <laughs> and maybe they're right, you know, because <laughs> yeah, it can be, yeah, it can be transformed into something, you know, wonderful, but the story, and you don't have to be precious about the really good dialogue or anything like that. I think, I think there's, um, there's a temptation to say that um, bad books make good movies because they come adorned in lots of plot um, and lots of turning points, uh, you know, and lots of twists. But I don't think it's necessarily true. Plenty of good books have made good movies. Now then, of course, it's your definition of what's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, no, I don't, I don't mean that. I mean, when I'd heard that initially, I thought, I, 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 don't, I don't want to celebrate bad writing as being, you know, great source material. But maybe also it's just that thing that you can, it's a structure that you can be, you have to, I guess, as I've spoken to different filmmakers, you have to be less precious or sacred about, it's a translation, it's not. Yeah, you just have to cut stuff out. You have to yeah. throw stuff away. When I've adapted my own work, it's really hard to take 500 pages and turn it into 150 pages of script. It's really hard. But you just say, that's unnecessary. I don't really need that. I needed it then, but whoever's writing this isn't who wrote that. So get rid of the, the, the excess and stick with what's really, you know, what you need to tell the story. Uh, it was hard. I mean, it's not easy to, to just sl slash and burn through your own story. But, you know, again, and also if you're telling a story in dialogue, all that interior monologue of the characters gone. That's one of the reasons they say bad books make good movies because it's all told up front. You don't have to find the character by, with interior monologue. You find the character through the dialogue. There's a wonderful, uh, I forget who said it. Somebody said Fitzgerald had a way of getting a character on stage that they barely had to speak and you knew who they were. Mm. You barely had to read the three lines of description. I actually think about that when I'm trying to get a character on stage in a script. How can you make the first, don't waste moments here. Don't waste time. The first thing the character says has to tell us something about who they are so that we can go with them on this journey. So literally every time I start a scene, I think, who is this? What's the first thing they say or do that tells us who they are? It's the revealing of character through action instantly. You don't have a lot of pages to do it. You have five seconds to do it. 
And I think that it's really something that people appreciate in the medium of television and film that your time is precious. So we can, this, if, you can, if you can telegraph that, you know, artfully, then, then that's really uh, beautiful. So you, so you began in journalism. I want to speak a little bit about that as well. Um, in terms, you didn't have writers in your family. I mean, what drew you to just telling stories? Uh, there was nobody in my family who would ever leave, except, you know, four generations back somewhere in Europe, who, who um, there were no, no, no evidence of anybody being a writer. And in fact, I mean, I didn't, I thought it was crazy for me to be doing it. Who am I to even think I can do this? But I felt that I wanted to do it. I was at a family wedding when I was a kid. Somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I was just getting out of college. And I said, I want to be a writer. And she said, you can't make a living at that. Mm. I thought, oh my God, this is a bad idea. Because nobody in, in my family would have thought to do that. They were all, you know, they were all business people and had great minds for math, which I didn't. You know, and they were good at... Um, at games that required uh, mathematical facility like bridge. So what I was doing was, you know, when, the, when I started out, I wrote garbage. I wrote junk um, because I was so desperate to prove to myself that I could write something that would be publishable. Um, and it was, it was pop garbage. Mm -hmm. and, and my editor at the time, and God bless her, Joyce Engelson, who had been a novelist herself said, why are you writing this junk? I mean, it's good junk, and it'll it'll make you a lot of money, but it's junk. Was it commissioned or? No, I I wrote a pulpy, you know, action novel that was just. I mean, it was terribly written, and it was to, to say there was a there was no character to speak of. They were all cardboard characters made mm -hmm. to move through a plot. And she said, "You shouldn't be. You can do better than this." But I didn't really know what she meant. She said, "Well, try." Don't, the next thing you write, don't write it to make the money. Don't write it to prove you can do something. Write something that you care about and see how it turns out. And we'll give you an advance for it just to make it easier. Right. And how old were you when you wrote your first book? Uh, I think I got my first book contract at um, 25, 24, something like that, 26. Some people are just finding out who they are at that age, even... You know, you can be intellectually precocious, but at the same time, you know, some of the things that you, you have to know yourself very well. I think to give that deep interior journey and to allow yourself to be vulnerable, to write something great. Right I didn't, uh, I just thought this is a way to, you want to do this. I mean, I'd wanted to do it since I was a kid, mm. but I didn't really know. I didn't have the education or the, or the, or the, um, intellectual support or the family that said, you should do this. Really, the first person who said I could do it was Joyce Engelson when she said, do better. Write something from your heart. Write something you understand, not something you're manufacturing as a product. And then, from then on, everything got easier. I mean, harder, but easier because I had a reason to do it. That The reason this most recent, the current project that I'm working on is as good as it is, is because it comes right from the heart. It's something I want to write about. It's a story I want to tell. There's a piece of me running through every character and stream of itself. You know, she had a little miracle there that if she had not said that to me, I would never have gotten where I did. Mentors, good teachers, people who just recognize that you have something and they believe in you, you can do so much. I mean, they think they realize, but even ha in having an early recognition, a school prize or whatever, this is so important. You know, you learn certain lessons. My lessons about discipline and, and treating work seriously, some of it does come from television. Like one night I didn't show up for a tag. Tag is the last scene of a show. Mm -hmm. I didn't show up on the set. I did show up on the set, but it was so late I went home. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was three o'clock in the morning and I was tired. Yeah. And um, the producer looked at the tag and said, why didn't, you, why didn't we get this in that corner over there where the character would have felt m more closed off? And I said, I don't know, I wasn't there. He said, here's the first lesson and don't ever forget it. Don't you ever do that again. Yeah. Don't you ever leave the set when the most, there are only two scenes that matter, the opening scene and the last scene. Don't leave when they're shooting the last scene. You stay there every second, of, I don't care what time of, three o'clock in the morning it is, 
you stay there till the tag is done and make sure it's perfect because that's what the audience leaves with. If the tag is no good, the rest of the script won't matter if they're unsatisfied by that. So it was a lesson, you know. So I want to say, was that in your capacity as, I didn't know that writers should always be there, but um, was that your capacity as executive producer, showrunner, or? A writer is, most writers in television, once they get past the first stage, yeah. become producers of their own episodes or yeah. of others' episodes. If you're a showrunner, you're there for every minute. This was the first job I had. I didn't really understand that I was even expected to do these things. I, I, was, I was a novice. And uh, the guy who said it to me, Joe Stern, said, you, there's no room here for mistake. We're not going back to shoot this. Mm -hmm. it, whatever you get, that's it. That's all we've got. We're not getting that location again in the middle of a season, maybe before the season and we can fix a couple of episodes because they haven't aired yet. But once we're on a roll, we're not going back to pick up that scene. So you can't let mistakes go by because there's no way to correct it. He, uh, Joe woke me up one morning at four o'clock in the morning. I was in California. Um, they were shooting in New York. I was out there I forget why somebody asked me to come out. And he said, we're shooting this, um, this grand jury scene and it's no good. I said, I, I thought I sort of nailed that. He said, well, we thought you did, but you didn't. So let's write it now. I said, Joe, it's four o'clock in the morning. He said, well, it's seven here and we're shooting it at eight. So let's get it right. He wanted me to rewrite the scene, um, go back to an earlier draft, take pieces of three draft and combine them. I literally got dressed. I was so tired. I, I forgot to take, I mean, I left in my pajamas with clothes on top of them. And I got into the office and said, what are you wearing? I would, that's how tired I was. And I wrote the scene and I said, I don't, we didn't have, there was no, we didn't, we needed somebody to do, to do, to run the computer, to do a modem in those days because we didn't have them on every computer. I said, now what do we do? He said, you're going to read me the scene line by line and I'm going to write it down and give it to the actor. All right. Okay. Now that's a lesson in his dedication to making it work is because you only have one opportunity. And he said, you'll wake up some morning 20 years from now and you'll be in a hotel somewhere and you'll turn on the television and this will be on and you will be glad that you didn't let it be done badly. Right. And, but yeah, the, well, that is, that's really the de dedication that makes things rise to, to art or mm, let's just see it pass, you know? Um, so, uh, but do you like working under deadline? Because some people get excited. <laughs> some people like love that, but I know there's so many deadlines in television. And I get excited by it. I, I, um, you put a gun to my head. I tend to. I, it focuses my mind very quickly that this has to be shot tomorrow morning. Yeah. I mean, at one point, I forget. I guess it was third season. Dick walked in and said, uh, "We need a script like now, tomorrow." because I, I don't have a script to shoot. I said, well, I didn't even begin outlining the script yet. He said, well, see if you can do it in the next couple of days. I said, Dick, I can't write a script in three days. He said, well, now you have to, so do it. And then he walked out. And in four days, I wrote, again, one of the best things I've ever written with a gun to my head, um, because I think I felt the pressure of being good and the time pressure at the same time. I'm uncomfortable. Um, talking about it. I'm uncomfortable saying it's the only script in the history of Law and Order um, that received an Emmy nomination for writing. Yes, I had read about that, yes. And when it happened, I thought, but I wrote this in four, you mean to tell me the best thing I've ever done I did in four days? Um, and it may just be that the intensity of writing, now it was also very close to my heart, but the intensity of writing it may have been what made it good. Sure, something of that intensity is transmitted into, you know, high stakes, and that's, that's transmitted right. into the viewers. That's right. They, I think they can feel it. That's right. Yeah. Um, and, and even into the actors, and to, you know, it's a contagious thing, so a, f a feedback. So what was it like, because I've heard this too, that Dick Wolf is, I mean, again, you know, always looking for excellence and persistence. So what was it like collaborating with him? Were you in, in at the very beginning of, of Law and Order? I was there before we started shooting. I was there yeah. before the first season shot. Right. And there was a very small staff because Dick had another staff in Las Vegas making another show. Mm -hmm. Some guys who had worked on the original scripts for Law and Order, but they weren't available. Mm -hmm. So there were a few of us. There were, I don't know, three or four of us at the most. 
and Dick rewrote everything as fast as he could. Um, and, and it was, I think one of the reasons those early seasons are as good as they are is that we were inventing it while we were doing it. That is, we didn't know what the show was. We were discovering what the show was and you could change it every week. You could take this form and do something completely new every single week. I said to Dick one week, how do you think I could sustain an entire act? You know, could I sustain 15 or 16 pages in two rooms with the same characters? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, we're going to have a negotiation, a plea bargain negotiations, and we're going to go from room to room and see who turns on who first. He said, if you can sustain that for 15 minutes, you should definitely do it, but I don't think you can sustain it for an entire act. I said, take my word for it. I can do this. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, well, when you have Philip Bosco and Roxanne Hart and you have Bob Gunton, you have these ex- three extraordinary actors. I mean, actors I had grown up admiring. I couldn't believe they were doing my dialogue. Yeah. Uh, it was stunning. They made that 15 minutes work. You couldn't take your eyes off them because they're so good. Sure, because they're always striving for excellence. And so it's, 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 it always is like greater than the, the sum of the individual parts. Um, that's, say, that's what it was like working with Dick at the beginning. Dick would take any chance at all. Anything you wanted to try, okay, go ahead and do it. Let's see if it works. Right. Well, that's a great spirit of adventure. And I, and I guess, you know, I mean, it's a huge success in the many different, like as a fr- franchise, I, since we're just called franchise, but yeah, it's been going so long in its different incarnations. Um, but in the beginning, you weren't, uh, as far as I know, there were some kind of controversies and you weren't sure who would it stay on the air. It was very questionable whether it was yeah. going to survive. And um, I didn't know anything about, you know, ratings or markets or, I mean, Dick knew all that stuff because he had started in advertising. And he also had, he's a kind of split personality. He has a business side and will say things like, Look, it's a brand. It's a brand like Ivory Soap. On the other hand, he'll sit there for a, you know five or six hours trying to come up with one line that would make everybody happy. He's a craftsman and an artist on the one hand, and he's a total businessman on the other. And that those two sensibilities combined to make that show what it was. You know, nobody had been doing that kind of storytelling when he did it. When he was he had that show idea for that show had come from an executive, a well-known executive at Universal, but. Uh, nobody else in television was doing what we called a storytelling. You tell one story from beginning to end. That had been done 15 years earlier, but this was the era of the big soap opera of Dallas and Dynasty and Knott's Landing. So Law and Order was retro. Mm -hmm. And in fact, nobody wanted to make it. It was bought for a fledgling network called Fox. Uh, They read the script and said, we don't want to make this. Uh, it was then moved to CBS and they said, oh no, this is interesting. We'll try. They made it and said, this is junk. We don't want to put it on the air. Mm-hmm. It was dead. The first time I saw it, nobody wanted to make this show. It was dead. NBC gets it and says, oh no, we want to make this. Well, we'll order six scripts and let's see if we want to make it. Now the pilot's already been shot by CBS. So NBC has to buy it away from them if they're going to run it and they didn't want to. And Dick said, yeah, but I wrote it. I want it on the air. Mm -hmm. Even though it had different cast in the middle of the first season, they ran the pilot that looked nothing like and had a different cast. Just Dick said, I made it. I want to see it. So they bought it away from CBS for quite a lot, as I remember. And uh, NBC said, we'll give this a try. The executives at NBC who saw it said, this will not work. It is six episodes and out. It's done. Mm -hmm. I was there when they were talking like this. And Dick said, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I hope so. I mean, I didn't know anything. I'd never done television. Well, it's, what is it? It's 25 years later and six episodes and out turned out to be, you know, a thousand episodes. So they were wrong. But the general consensus, except Brandon Tartikoff, who was president of NBC, the consensus was, this is not going to work. The audience won't be interested. It's too dry. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that, and you think of other successes that they and other shows, uh, Seinfeld or whatever, you know, rocky periods in the beginning, because it's new, you know, yeah. you have to sort of, people didn't know that they wanted it until they say, oh, I, I kind of like this, but I'm, am I supposed to like this? So, so and then, and then the, the love really comes on, it may be because it takes a while for the, the flame to start. 
it took a while with this. I mean, it was, it was the first season was okay in the numbers, but pretty rocky, always sort of on the edge of not being picked up. Second season, not so sure the numbers got a little better. By third season, it looked like, oh, this might have a very good niche that the audience that watches it, which got bigger and bigger, really wants it. It was so different even then, even by the third season. You had, Television used to be somebody got in a car and drove up a driveway and knocked on the door. So you've just spent 45 seconds getting in a car and going to the door. In Law and Order, none of that happens. It's dialogue wall to wall, which is one of the things that attracted me. Sure. Dialogue from beginning to end. You never stop talking. And, and you end one scene on a word and you open the next scene on a word and there's no long walks up driveways or down hallways. You know, there are no silence moments. Um, and maybe you have a five second moment where somebody thinks, but that was really different. And a lot of the audience didn't know what to make of it. It was too fast. They couldn't follow the story. What, what's happening here? The reason all those little ka-chings are in there and those little cards with the dresses and things is because the first thing the executive said, who, whose idea it was, was slow this thing down. They're not going to follow it. Let's just put some address cards in and let's get a musical sting because they were so afraid it was, and it was, it was too fast for the audience at the time. Now, of course, it's a cliche. Yeah, well, you yeah, because the, the genre has been laid by <laughs> your good, good work. But it's, and, and also I think because it's, it's courageous, you know, the themes that were being tackled and are being tackled um, from, you know, abortion, in you know, very divisive subjects, you know, abortion now and all these things, yeah. Well, that episode didn't run in several markets. Mm -hmm. They lost money. The network lost money. The abortion episode did, was not repeated in prime time for years. They couldn't show it again because it was so far ahead of its time. Um, I remember Dick saying, we're doing an episode about a, we're going to do an episode about the bombing of an abortion clinic. Come back to me with a story. Um, and the story, I think David Black and I wrote it, is that the woman, the, the zealot, first, that was a real ch challenge. Don't make a zealot cardboard. We have to identify with her, understand her, and like her the minute we meet her. Otherwise, we're, we're judging her based on the fact that she was involved in blowing up an abortion clinic and somebody got killed. We, we can't judge her as bad from minute one because then we won't, it won't be a true story. It won't have any emotional reality to it. And then um, we, we finished it and it was astounding. I rem uh, what's her name? Caroline Kava, the actress who played the bomber, who, um, who had a really quite a good movie career as well, um, uh, made her likable and also we thought she was deranged at the same time. Really brilliant performance. And that episode, you know, some of the affiliates saw it and said, we're not running this. It was too, it was too much for its time. Sure. I mean, we're still, look out the window, we still can't decide. <laughs> look, there's a lot of chaos happening now, different subject, but it's, it. Um, well, we're watching out, I, I'm yeah. looking outside my window every day and I go out on the streets and what I see is a country that's been fracturing for a very long time. And now the fracture is just wide open. It's just right there in front of everybody that yeah. this country has been split, um, if not in halves anyway, in thirds. And uh, it's playing out now in the, in the, what could be, what feels like the end of the society. Uh, a friend of mine who's very cynical um, said, well, we might as well call it what it is. It's a television series. And this, this, episode, this season is called America, the final season, um, which, which, which was both funny and dark. And I laughed but I didn't laugh. I mean, I was laughing, but I was, I was feeling, um, he may be right. Mm. We may be in the middle of the end of this country. Um, and he only, he described it as television because it's a language we all understand. Sure. You know, the drama of the final season. And uh, it was, it, it's upsetting to have, to, to try to work in the middle of this because you think, is there gonna be a country here in six months? Mm. I think um, I surely that that is the outward sign, and on top of the societal divides, economic divides, you know, racial, gender divides, all this. Then you have the health, you have the pandemic, 
so I think it certainly has all the outward signs. I mean, I have reason to be a, a little bit maybe more hopeful because I'm, you know, working, mentoring a lot of students. And I see that they're um, not just optimistic, but they're willing to work for their ideals. So that makes me more optimistic. But And yet we have a lot of things that we need to fix. So I just think it's a kind of... Um... I don't know if this is what we're supposed to be talking about. No, that's it's a, okay. It's a perfect storm. Mm -hmm. If you wanted, if you took the worst paranoid fantasies of authoritarianism and you added to them um, a global pandemic, um, um, race as, as, a, as, a, as a spark for, for riots or for protests. The riots are not about race. The, the riots are about opportunists. Um, and then you add on top of that 20 plus percent unemployment by the end of the year, which is the levels of the Great Depression were 23%. So we're going to get to that 23%. And the government or part of this government is not interested in taking care of anybody. What happens if, if, if those people who are without income, who can't pay for food, who can't pay their rent, how many of those people will it take to be angry enough at what's happening to them to, for them to become a spark? Then you have three things going on at the same time that are all explosive. I'm not saying it'll happen, but I think the possibilities for authoritarianism in this country triumphing are not minor. By the time we finish this, you know, we'll find out, you know, and yeah. by the fall, we'll find out just how bad things are or, or sooner. Yeah, well, it seems to be cyclical, like the author, you know, authoritarianism um, takes root, you know, during these vulnerable moments. So it's, it's not forever, but I would love, I mean, I live in France, which is an imperfect society as well, and which has also, um, you know, its own inequalities. And yet we are a socialist country, a semi-socialist, because of course we're a capitalist, but, um, you know, we do believe, you know, universal education for all, universal healthcare. These are sort of things that we believe is a basic right. So I would hope that we, in America can move towards that because if you say that people should don't deserve health care, it means, oh, well, there's some people who deserve to die, you know, <laughs> and if people don't, you know, d deserve education, you know, um, it means you don't really care about your children. <laughs> so there's a, I, I would hope, I, I, I'm certainly, as I speak more and more to young people, that is what they are moving towards. Like I can say, because we have, so many working on this project, but that's what they're very interested in. Well, when you talk about universal education, and I try, when Americans say to me, well, we can't afford it. I said, well, how do the Germans and the French afford it? Mm -hmm. How is it that you can go to a major university in France for $900 a year, but it has to be $60,000 a year here? That's not about affording, that's about choosing what you will spend your money on. This country has chosen to make education expensive for everybody, but a public university shouldn't cost $40,000 a year. It shouldn't cost $50,000 a year to go to a state a, a university that's taxpayer funded. But most Americans, if you tell them, now you don't understand in France, it's $1,000 a year maximum. Sometimes it's $600 for the entire year. They don't, they literally don't believe you. Oh, sure. I did an exhibition at a university that's ranked, like, in terms of innovation up there with MIT, okay, in, in Europe. And, yeah, it's 600 a year. That's with lab fees. Like, you know, it's like, yeah, that's really... This country, once upon a time, and not so long ago, mm -hmm. the City University of New York, when I was younger, was free mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, you know, and if you look at who went there... Oh, great minds. Oh, I mean, Henry Kissinger and Colin Powell and Bernard Baruch and just this massive list of, 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 of great intellects and great achievers, and it was free. Now it's six or $7,000 a year. You can't ask a kid from the Dominican Republic whose parents got here yesterday mm -hmm. to pay $7,000 a year to go to school on top of books and food and yeah. housing. Now they did... Cuomo did start to fix it a little with, with a, a large um, level of scholarships, but it shouldn't be a question. It should be free. Yeah. Well, I think so because we're diminished by not having everyone participate in it's, 
you're not take, getting, there are great minds who you don't come from no. money. So we're diminished by not giving them the opportunities to express their intelligence and their in, in Very hard to fight with people who don't, or argue with people who don't even, um, can't, you can't even embrace a common language. I mean, mm -hmm. one thing as a writer is you're always looking for the language that will bring in the audience in a common language, even if they don't agree with you, even if the material upsets them, that there's enough commonality. But we don't even, we don't have it in this country to the extent where I said to somebody, you understand if Jonas Salk, who had no money, and his brother both, if Jonas Salk had not gone to the City University of New York when it was free, we wouldn't have a polio vaccine. You, you can draw a line from, from a free university to saving millions of lives. And uh, you can't, some people won't process that language. It literally doesn't, um, it, it sounds like you're speaking Urdu, you know, they don't even hear it as English because they're so resistant to the idea. I mean, I, you do it as a writer when you're writing anything. Say, how do I bring in people who will not want to be with me mm. at the beginning? I, I need to make the people they don't like human. They have to understand. It's hard, again, to say to people, one of the things that you discover as a writer that I discovered is if you just approach characters as we all have much more in common than we have different. That is, we have, there's a commonality of being human that everybody understands. If you can find that, you, you will bring people to you and they'll listen to what you want to say. Uh, but if people immediately put up a wall against that, oh no, we're different. No, no, we're different, but we have much more in common than we, than we have differences. It's very hard to get, um, uh, to get people who are not inside that idea to accept that as reality. Well, I think what's interesting, and I think to an extent everyone around the world is influenced by marketing and branding. And I observed, because I was born in America and I come back regularly, um, that it's perhaps taken root, it's been more effective and it's flourishing in America. And I feel like the brands like capitalism, um, Democrat, Republican, or whatever, they're like religions to people, you know, like it's so to get beyond it. And I feel, and, and that's why some politicians are really good at rebranding or repackaging things to make it accessible to people that they don't actually understand that they agree with you because they're so convinced of this, this thing. Once I hear that this, oh, it's not Republican or Democrat or capitalist or it's socialist. Oh my God, it's so bad. But then I need to go to the hospital, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> so I'm dying, you know, my customers are all dying, you know, we need to look after them. The world needs to change in its, uh, I think when I'm trying to make something make sense to people, I, I say, what, what movie have you seen? What book have you read that when you read it at 20 was different when you read it at 50? That it's a that, that the great art becomes something new every time you read it. And I said to a friend of mine who's a Godfather fanatic, when you watch The Godfather today, it doesn't mean what it did at 20, because when you were 20, you didn't even understand what epic corruption was. None of, when I was 20, I didn't. And when Kale Pauline Kale described it as a story of epic corruption for Godfather II, I sort of vaguely knew what she was talking about, you know, AT&T and imperialism and all those, IT&T, but I didn't really. At 40, it meant something completely different. Now I'm trying to get people to understand, to see our current reality that way. Uh, the, the, the common refrain is, I made my money, I'm entitled to keep it. Mm -hmm. And you try to explain to somebody, no, you didn't just make your money. Um, by yourself. Um, no, that, that mogul didn't um, amass his fortune without help, your help and my help. We paid taxes to build the airports. We pay taxes to build the roads. We pay taxes that are given as grants to agriculture schools so that they can develop better seeds, which agribusiness then uses to grow our food. But all along the way, you've been paying for it as the taxpayer. So that that guy who says, I made it on my own. No, no, you owe us something back in taxes. Mm -hmm. You pay taxes because you didn't make it on your own. But it's very, very hard to, uh, to get people to understand that's a kind of socialism. Mm -hmm. Supporting agricultural schools with taxpayer money mm -hmm. or defense contractors who develop airplanes that Boeing then makes, that's all a kind of socialism.
Social security is socialism. Schools are socialism. Fire departments. But you can't, to somebody who's been blocked on, as you say, socialism, bad. Mm -hmm. You can't explain any of that. Yeah, well, that's why storytellers are so important. And actually, I, I'm glad that, it, I don't feel this is going off, off topic because in fact, these are some of the issues that you have been writing on in, in various TV shows. I wanna also talk about ER because again, that was another show you were there at the beginning. But these are stories that you can make, bring across emotionally where people have blocks in their, their logic when they, they won't listen. So it's so fascinating because sometimes you can absorb a story that may appear in the news and not move you, but when you see it in Law and Order or in ER, something you can understand on the human level. Um, very early in ER in the first season, I wrote an episode in which one of the patients doesn't have insurance and can't get asthma medicine. I think it's for her child. And um, Dr. Ross, later that night, gets it from the hospital and takes it over. Now that's a palliative, but he was so worried that her kid wasn't gonna have it that he went over in the middle of the night and delivered it. I think it was for her son. Uh, but I remember there was a little bit of edginess about should we be talking about how the healthcare system doesn't take care of people? It's 1994. 1995, you really weren't supposed to say those things. So it was a little on the edge to say, I don't have enough money to pay for this visit or for the medicine. Um, that was a little dicey to say in the ER, except nobody said a word. Nobody said, don't do it. And um, I think it, you know, the idea that it spoke to people, I knew it spoke to people because we got letters that said it spoke. People said, thank God you said that. I'm really glad to see that on television so that people understand not everybody can afford to go to a doctor. Sure, it starts conversations and it can help bring movements, um, at least awareness. Um, it's so important. First, one of, one of my recent trips to America, I had a, I knew I was unwell and it just, uh, bringing it home is the difference between, uh, say, medicine in France and America. I, when I arrived back in France, I went to visit the doctor and they said, you, uh, you have to stay, you have to have emergency surgery. And I was so, I was so, I felt I was so happy. It didn't happen in New York. I was like, oh, thank God. And then I was worried I had no paperwork or anything. And then, um, because I wasn't prepared, you know, I, when I am covered, but I wasn't prepared. I said, don't worry about it. It's an emergency, meaning life or death you don't even have to pay even if you wanted to you have to stay here you can't don't go home and stay here <laughs> and i said the women i'm going to hear it in america when? <laughs> so um you know i i i want it to be the case where everyone where everyone's life is is valued as you know worth saving at least I'm Sophie Mackin, a politics major from Bates College and an associate podcast producer for The Creative Process. One of the most important takeaways for me from this conversation with Robert Nathan so far has been that writing is an incredibly powerful tool for reaching people emotionally. Nathan has discussed how he as a writer is moved by the material he works with and how he hopes his audiences will be similarly moved. He has said that one of the most important writing lessons he learned is that his best and most impactful work revolves around the topics he cares about and understands. Catering to what you think people will like or what you think will make money will not produce meaningful outcomes. I was excited to listen to Nathan reflect on the legacy of his past work. For example, he referenced ER episodes that dealt with healthcare inequalities and law and order episodes that dealt with reproductive rights, highlighting these issues at a time when they were not given a platform. Storytelling through writing encourages audiences to listen without shutting down because a topic is too political or deemed controversial. Robert Nathan has been able to use his gift of writing to humanize really important social and political conversations, and I think that is a very impressive legacy to leave. Art can be such an important tool for making change. As we are living through what feels like a new era of civil rights activism and renewed energy to fight for equality and justice, art, especially forms of writing, can play a huge role.
Robert Nathan speaks about how much he values collaboration and how much he learns from working with other artists as well. A diversity of voices expressed through art has and definitely will continue to shape how people see the world and expand our understandings of one another. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to writer, producer, director, Robert Nathan. To speak a little bit about the, the actors you wrote for, and it's a different relationship, as you say, than writing for, you know, for film or whatever. Like you can see them, their careers grow and evolve into the character. One of the things about writing for actors is you have to hear how the actor speaks because you're not writing dialogue in a vacuum. You have to write dialogue that you know will come naturally out of that actor's mouth, that they are comfortable saying it. So that when, for example, Paul Sorvino replaced George Zunza on, um, did he replace George? On Law and Order, Paulie had a much more um, expansive way of speaking as a person. And so as an actor, if you tried to give him kind of very clipped language, he couldn't do it. And he would say, I can't speak this. Can you make this sound like me? And I wanted to say, no, you make it sound like the character. But then I realized, oh no, we're all, we're all not attentive to, he's a different character. He speaks differently. And we should do that just for the sake of the character. But it was Paulie who said it. He said, I can't do this. This isn't the way I speak. And I find it difficult to get these sentences out of my mouth. And anytime an actor says that, you have to ask, do they want to rewrite the dialogue just because they want to rewrite the dialogue? Or are they telling you the truth? And mostly, they're telling you the truth. Mm -hmm. I can't make this work. We had a rule at ER. You speak the dialogue. I mean, it was if you were writing a play on Broadway. Mm -hmm. You speak the dialogue the way it's written. And the actors were told, if you don't speak it the way it's written, we will stop production. Mm -hmm. We'll stop shooting until you do do it the way it's written. Now, that's a little brutal, and that's a little... Um, um, may sound excessive, but it's the only way you're gonna get that script onto the screen the way it's written. And then you say to the actor, but if you wanna try three other versions, that's fine. We'll shoot those as well. And if you wanna rewrite the line, you'll ask us and we'll rewrite the line on the set. But it was very, it was very attentive to the language of the script. And the, the, the thing that is hardest to say, now, you don't have to say this to George Clooney, and you didn't have to say it to George, or Tony, or Eric, or Sherry, or any of those, or Juliana, any of those actors then, they understood it. But some actors don't understand that when you put in a, or a breath, or um, um, uh, when you do enough of that, the language loses its strength. That it's written to be delivered the way it's written, because you think if you put in all those coughs, like, um, uh, mm, you do all that, you don't realize that added up over the course of 50 minutes, it's a lot of time and distraction. So you have to say to the actor, you're, you're, you're muddying what's in the words, and there aren't many words there because we don't have many to do it. And um, you don't have to do that with, with regulars. They know not to do that. And the regulars, the regular actors, George is perfectly happy to say, I don't like this line. Can you give me a better way of doing this? One time George said, I don't like this line. And I said, well, you're not delivering it really right. I, he said, well, you're not gonna give me a line reading. Most actors will kill you. I said, no, but you know, I think maybe if you punch the beginning instead of the end, he said, I'll do it for you and I'll hate it, but I'll bet you use it anyway. <laughs> and he was right, I did. <laughs> Uh, well, it's it's also great a bit of that give and take as well because that makes always makes things it usually can make things stronger you know because you're both fighting for the same thing ultimately. unquestionably if you have very very smart actors and that was an extremely smart gifted bunch of actors that cast um, were not only really good actors they were also really smart people I wouldn't say that's always the case but they understood the language of the scene and they understood the point of the scene and they could help you make it better. Mm -hmm. If an actor said, there's too many words here, can't I just say this in five words and it'll be much punchier and sharper and say, oh, you know what? You're right. Let's reduce that. Now, most actors won't say reduce my lines, but really good actors will say it in a second. 
the collaboration is endless on a television show. The best note I ever got was from an assistant director, a guy who literally is a traffic cop. He moves actors through the background. He gets scenes set up. And he said, I don't believe this moment for a second. Mm. And a writer in Los Angeles said, what are you doing listening to assistant directors? I said, I would listen to anybody who knew what they were talking about. And in fact, he's right. Mm. And I'm enormously grateful because that change made that episode, Manhood, the one that was nominated yeah. for an episode, made it 100% better. One note from this AD. I remember it as if it were yesterday, and it was a long, long time ago. That's 25 years, 30 years ago. Well, I mean, it's, it's so true because even those who are not in a, the most responsible position, sometimes, well, they can observe a bit, you know, because they're not caught up in all the other details. So I, I think, and I've heard this from, you know, different directors and writers, you know, value everyone. Everyone feels like they're putting their artistic input, you know, on some level they are. They have a sense of ownership and it can only make the project stronger. The thing is not to dismiss a note because mm -hmm. of who's giving it to you. You can dismiss the note because you don't like it or you think it's wrong. In television in particular, the collaboration is about listening to everybody at that production meeting and listening to everybody on a set who says, this isn't working. You've written for so many charismatic actors. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, in, in your observations, um, you know, what goes into that screen presence? Because it's a kind of magic and you don't always know it. I don't know, you know. What makes, what makes a star different from an actor? Um, a star is somebody who can play themselves in every part and you'll watch them because you're watching them, you're not watching the part. A great actor can take any part and bring something new to it so that they dissolve into it. Those two kinds of performers are rare. And what may, why is it that when somebody walks on the screen, you can't take your eyes off them? Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's uh, metaphysical, it's, um, you know, it's alchemical. Mm -hmm. There's no explanation for it. People either have it or they don't. Um, I don't think you can manufacture it. I think you can learn techniques to increase it, but you either have something in you that the camera likes and that the audience likes or you don't. And I think it's very, very hard um, to learn or to make up or to create if you don't really have it. Um, I know some people who worked with Richard Gere very, very early. He was a kid in a musical. And uh, the consensus in the, in the audience of watching the re rehearsal was, gee, it's, it's a little, is he being a little vacant here? And somebody said, no, he's not. He's thinking about what's going on. You're just not seeing it. And um, the thing about gear is, it doesn't really matter what's going on when he's doing it. If you look into his eyes, what you get is a sense of mystery. He's holding something back from you. That's why you come to him. That's why you come to the screen, because there's a mystery there, and he is not going to reveal all of it to you. Every actor who has a sense of that mystery, you want to watch. Um, Lindsay Krauss has it. I mean, she's always had it since she was a young actress. And she also has that other, you know, ineffable, immeasurable thing of when she walks on the screen, you look at her. Mm. She happens to be beautiful, but that's not the reason you look at her. There are plenty of beautiful actresses you don't look at. There are plenty of good-looking actors you don't look at. It's something from inside that I don't know. I wouldn't even begin after all these years to say what makes it up. You look at an actor who's really hardworking, who is as hardworking in their craft as the writer is in, 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 in writing the script, and that actor has asked 50 questions of every line before they speak it, has, has, has said, what does this mean? Who am I as this character? What am I saying? I worked very briefly with Jeff Goldblum on a couple of episodes of Law and & Order, and Unlike most actors, because he's confident of who he is, he said to me, tell me what this line means and then tell me how to say it. I said, Jeff, nobody wants to hear line readings. Actors don't like that. He said, I'm not actors, I'm me. Tell me how I could say this. And I told him what I, I mean, he didn't understand a lot of the give and take in a procedural. 
Um, he had done it, but he wanted to know more. So I did, and he said, good, now give me another version. Then give me another version. He said, give me 50 ways to say this so I can think about what each of them mean. Uh -huh. It's at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, and we're shooting it the next day. And I thought, I've never seen this kind of dedication. I mean, I've seen it, but this kind of craftsmanship from an actor where he wants to understand every single word and the possibilities in it. As you write it, what other possibilities are you, the writer, feeling in this is what he wants to know. And, and I, think I, think, I think that that's so smart. And I've heard other people tell me, friends of his tell me uh, interesting things about him because he's also a jazz musician as well. So that would play to like, there's another spin on this. There's another spin on this. How to, um, but yeah, it's interesting because he's recognizing, well, I think in, in television as well, that, you know, the, the writer, producer, showrunners are not so much, um, you know, you're more married to the stories, right? Than often the directors that might be coming in on just, you know, very brief periods, often. I mean, I'm not sure how it was, how it was long, right? So he's recognizing you're acting out the role as you're writing it and maybe he could learn about it. You know the subtext, you've thought about it, you've given a lot of thought to it. So I, I think it's just very smart. So many smart people say they don't know, you know? Like they don't know, tell me, how, how would you do it? How would I do this? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I think that that's great. Yeah, it's not uh, the humility of that. Um, and I guess we've been talking over, over time, but what you've been saying is so interesting, but I do like to end on a note about the future. And so I think that we can't just go blindly into it. There's beyond the pandemic, there's the environment, as you say, there's healthcare, there's the, all these decisions that we have to make and sacrifices really. So we can't just be optimistic and hope for the best. We have to work towards it. Um, but I guess thinking about the future and also education, um, you know, and, and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. I mean, what are some things that you feel, some ways you would like to Im improve some of our current systems and how can the arts be a part of that or at least telling the stories that help make those things happen? I have a belief, um, irrational, mm. it's an irrational belief, that language itself um, can change the world and that, and that how young people learn to use the language can change the world. So I really believe that if you, if you can teach uh, students what language does and how it can both distort and enhance reality, um, that's something that as, as artists is valuable. I'm not even talking about making movies or writing scripts. I'm talking about, uh, I'm talking about Orwell. I'm talking about Orwell saying, um, thought may corrupt language, but language can corrupt thought. Uh, language um, used um, for devious ends is corrupting. So I think artists can teach language and teach the use of language and have a real effect on the future if we have time. I think that's a way um, um, that we can, that in a very minor way, on the surface, we can affect the future. I also believe that, you know what, it's a cliche again, that everybody has talent. Some people just don't have the chance to develop it or are afraid or don't have the support. Um, and if you can, if you can en encourage people to explore what they can do, um, that's another way to affect the future and affect what what young people can do. So I think those are those are the those are the things artists can do. You can help people realize their own artistic potential, and you can you can um, you can explain and by example show what language can do and 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 how it can be used for the common good and against the common good. Um, and uh, I think that business of, uh, of uh, the business of explaining and the use of language is something that will be um, that can't be underestimated. Sure, it brings together communities um, and, and and makes us, as you were saying uh, towards the beginning of this conversation, um, uh, see our how how much we have in common. In fact, isn't it? Um, 
we don't yes. think, yeah, uh, it really draws, yes. We're not as different. We are, the whole, you know, um, who said it? It's not Orwell. Who said that the, the goal of propaganda is to make everybody think that they're better than somebody else, that somebody else isn't deserving of something. That's what propaganda is for. And if that lesson can be taught, again, you can use language to separate people, or you can use language to explain to all of us that we are all really in this together, and that there, there is no reason, um, except for the gain of a few, to um, separate us as not having things in common. I, I wish I could remember who said that about pro the purpose of propaganda. It I'm not sure, I'm not sure either. Um, might be Aldous Huxley. Was it? Yes, maybe. Um, so, yeah, that's open. I, I'm not sure. I can't say definitely. But I, I just want to, um, that's a great note on the importance of the arts, importance of language, because some, um, some of us are forgetting. We're in its image-based society more and more. So, but it is very important, and it's, I think, the basis of nuanced thinking, really. Um, or one of the one of the ways of communicating complex thought. Um, so I want to uh, thank you, uh, Robert Nathan, for sharing these insights for all the stories that uh, you've told across you know be your beginnings in journalism, novels, television, film. Um, we look forward to your future. Uh, I don't know when it's appearing, so I can't say the, the name of it. But um, we look forward to that period piece that we're so excited to, to hear about. And um, and just just thank you for your generosity of your time and sharing the importance of storytelling and how um, these aren't just entertainments, but they lead to cohesive society. Thank you. Thank, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for having me. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Sophie Mackett. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. And Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to be involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.